It's truly a majestic opportunity that we have this morning and a blessed one at that to be able to come together in the solemnity of this day, the first day of the week, and to be able to enjoy the great blessing of not only fellowship one with another, but most significantly fellowship with our wonderful Heavenly Father. In fact, as we make an approach to that, as was already mentioned the announcements, we have certainly much for which we can remember in prayer, certainly also much for which we can continue to be thankful. As you may have noted in the bulletin, our lesson today will be drawn from the second chapter of the Gospel according to Mark. And in our hearing just a few moments ago, Brother Adam read for us the opening five verses of that chapter. As I ask you to note some of the lessons that we might draw from that this morning, you might appreciate with me the title is simply that of Knowing the Power of Love and Faith. By way of introduction, though, let me indicate a few of the things that I'd like for us to see as we look at that text. Knowing the power of love and faith relates, of course, in one way to overcoming obstacles. Perhaps you've heard it said by others that the universe itself, at least from a scientific viewpoint, is lazy. It takes the path of least resistance. In life, it's safe to say that you and I ought not do that. For isn't it true that if we always take that path of least resistance, we will arrive at the end of the way with very little meaningful to show for the things we've encompassed our time with in this life. You see, we are faced with obstacles, not only in a physical way, but even spiritually. There is an ever-present enemy all about us, as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. The famous words of 1 Peter 5 verse 8. In what way then might we overcome obstacles? How do we approach them in a viewpoint, in a way that will most likely lead to us being victorious? Conquering that obstacle, being able to thus shine brightly not only to ourselves in the presence of God's glory, but showing others the promise and the means by which even they can meet the obstacles in their lives. As we revisit then the second chapter of Mark, several lessons we shall be able to extract that will help us in meeting obstacles. Maybe one last point. Isn't it fair to say that it matters not whether we are young or whether we're a bit older, with perhaps a few more gray hairs covering our head, the obstacles will never stop. Until we, in fact, lay down the old mortal coil of this flesh, we shall always encounter those matters that will make the efforts and difficulty even greater. We must ever be ready prepared and willing to face those obstacles and to do so in a fashion and a way that will most likely bring glory to God and will lead to victorious nature for us. By way of introduction also, let us notice the setting of Mark 2 verses 1 through 5. Perhaps as much as any of the other gospel accounts, Mark sheds a beautiful light on the Galilean ministry, the early Galilean ministry of our Lord. And in that way, we have a very quick and abrupt beginning in chapter 1, but it so wonderfully presents the effect that Jesus had in the area of Galilee in northern Palestine. I've listed some of the thoughts that you might make note with me. Mark informs us in verse 1, Capernaum is the city of mention. That was a place frequently made use of by our Savior as a hub, as a headquarters, if you will, for His earthly ministry. Isn't it amazing to then encounter, or ever so briefly, some of what took place in that area? It was a very significant city on the northwestern corner of the Sea of Galilee. 
It was here that he would encounter such individuals as Peter and Andrew. It was here in Mark chapter 1 that we find that he healed a man with an unclean spirit. Also in that same chapter, we find that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. Not only that, in verse 32, a whole host of individuals were brought to him and the Lord healed them. Finally, it might be noted, he even healed a man that was a leper. I say all that to help us at least quickly see the Lord's popularity was expanding and growing by leaps and bounds. Individuals, once they learned of his capability miraculously, would bring others to him. The Savior was a busy man, it would seem. To say all of that is to notice there are four times in, verse, in chapter 1 of Mark where that emphasis is laid before us. Where in fact it is said something about his popularity increasing and growing and prevailing. It is no wonder then as we approach chapter number 2, the very text read before us earlier, we notice there in verse number 2, it says, And straightway many were gathered together insomuch that there was no room to receive them. You see, Jesus in this Galilean region had not only performed miracles, they were somewhat aware of his teaching. And when he now entered Capernaum again, when the crowd heard, when word had spread abroad, there were so many that came together that the house was, if you will, standing room only. There was not even room to get through the door. That posed a particular difficulty and an obstacle, did it not? For notice also, as he preached to them in verse number 2, there were four men who had a desire. You see, they had a good friend, a friend who was paralyzed, a friend who was dealing with a very difficult physical malady from day to day. And in that paralytic state, they desired to bring him to the man before whom he would be able to be healed or at least helped. They had an obstacle before them. Notice again verse number 4. And when they could not come nigh unto him for the press, they uncovered the roof where he was, and when they had broken it up, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. The door was blocked. The throng was so numerous, the crowd was so large. They were unable to walk in the door and bring this paralyzed friend of theirs before the Savior. Did they give up? Did they decide to go back home and try another day? Or did they, with determination, seek to meet the obstacle that had been set before them? We notice in verse number 4, when they couldn't come in by the normal or approved way, if you will, they proceeded to the roof in which they broke up a section of it, lowered the paralyzed man through that roof before the Savior. They found a way. They, with determination and dedication, found a way to accomplish and meet the obstacle. So much so, then, as we notice as verse number 4 closes, they let down the bed wherein the sick of the palsy lay. These four friends did a fantastic amount of work to meet the obstacle of bringing the friend that they had before Jesus. Let's look a little bit further at this story, appreciating perhaps some other things that might be noted that will help us more deeply to meet the obstacles that you and I face. I've listed just a few of the obstacles that these friends faced. Notice, there was a large crowd. Perhaps that was obvious. Here was Jesus, the marvelous teacher and the wonderful miracle worker who had the capability of aiding the paralyzed man, and yet, so many people. Notice what else. The access to the roof. 
Once they saw that they were unable to make their way through the door, their next decision was to make their way to the roof. How did they get up there? Perhaps there was a stairwell. Perhaps it was narrow. And yet they were carrying a man apparently on a gurney to get up to that roof. Not an easy task to say the least. Any of us who have tried to carry a person a great height knows that it takes a great deal of effort. Notice also they had to uncover the tile. A portion of the roof had to be dismantled, and who knows that whether that was a trivial or easy job to perform, and yet they did so. Not only that, they had to have some means by which they lowered this man into that room. Perhaps they acquired ropes. Perhaps they had them handy. At any rate, they proceeded to do what was necessary. Once Jesus had been this faced with this man who had been lowered before him, how would he react? Did they know that the Lord would bless him and pronounce upon him the cure desired? Or could he perhaps have reprimanded them for disturbing his preaching, for disturbing his sermon? The outset, they could only hope for the good results and pleasant ones. Many obstacles, you see, were set in their way. As we consider any of them, perhaps all of them would have been enough to stop process immediately. Let's wait for a different day. Let's wait to the end of day when all this crowd has gone home and we'll find the Savior in a quiet, peaceful time. They didn't do that. They had enough concern for that paralyzed man, enough desire to bring him before the Master that time was of the essence. Time was urgent, and they needed to find a way to approach this immediately. When Jesus thus turned his attention to this paralyzed man, isn't it a fascinating point to observe verse 5? When Jesus saw their faith, he said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, thy sins are forgiven thee. Notice that the friends had as their desire to bring this paralyzed man before the Savior in an effort that he might be healed physically. But yet the Lord's first matter of concern was not his physical state. It was his spiritual state. That is a dramatic lesson for us to note at the outset, isn't it? Thy sins are forgiven thee. May you and I thus ever also remember that though physical things are important, we need food and shelter and clothing to sustain the matters physically in life, but those are not the most important. Thy son, thy sins be forgiven thee. Jesus, did he not also say in the Sermon on the Mount in verse 33 of Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. That is found in a context in which he was discussing the physical necessities of life, food, shelter, clothing, things like that. And in that very text, the Lord nonetheless said, Seek first God's kingdom. As often as we may recollect and think of that thought, it's still an urgent need to keep it in the forefront of our thinking and in the forefront of our lives. What's more, in 1 Timothy 4 verse 8, as the inspired apostle made note of that message to Timothy, he urged him to appreciate the importance of the body. But notice what's more important. He said, For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things. What was that, Paul? Godliness is profitable unto all things. May we thus certainly not neglect the body. 
or the physical necessities of life, but may we ever remember that there shall come a day when before the great God in judgment we shall stand and there the character of our immortal spirit, whether it's covered in sin or not, is going to be the ultimate essence of questions. It is no wonder then Jesus first addressed the spiritual welfare of this man. Notice also something else to be observed. As these points are set forth, Jesus had a lesson for the scribes and the Pharisees. After turning to them and addressing a lesson to them, he healed this man. May I now ask you to note five lessons that we might extract that will help us meet obstacles. Lessons that we can use day by day to assist us not only in overcoming the spiritual obstacles in our way, but occasionally even to address the physical ones. Our opening lesson. Notice Jesus' actions. First, he forgave the man of sins, and then he proceeded to heal him physically. That helps to teach us the first lesson of our day. And it is, of course, that he was able to do, of course, what he could do, and you and I should ever strive to do what we can do. It's to be admitted, of course, by all that there are things that you and I can't do. We can't work miracles. We can't physically heal someone miraculously. The Lord could. You and I should seek to do thus what we can with what we have. That is a dramatic lesson to be learned. That means there are some things that we won't directly be able to accomplish except with great trial and patience and perseverance. But we should do what we can with what we have. Jesus did that. And notice the four friends did that too. They couldn't heal the man, but they could bring him before one who could. And that they did. I've listed some thoughts to prompt us to consider this issue of miracles. We well appreciate again that the Lord lived in a day and in a time when, when miracles were somewhat commonly occurring. All the apostles were given power to perform miracles. The Lord could perform miracles. And yet you and I live in a day and in a time when there are some who think that they can as well. Has the Lord given the opportunity and the power of performing miracles to us in this day? Or were those reserved for a specific time and to accomplish a work that God had in mind then? There are some texts that shed light upon that question and thought. May I ask you to notice Mark 16 verse 20, the very last verse, if you will, of the book of Mark. After the Great Commission, Jesus, in directing his attention toward those apostles and disciples, urged them, and the following note is made, and they went everywhere, preaching the word, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs and wonders. Isn't it amazing then that the confirmation of the word was accomplished with signs that were, that were to follow? It is to be fairly noted then that there the important verb to appreciate the reasoning for those miracles was to confirm the word. They lived, you see, in a time when the Holy Scriptures as you and I have them in bound form was not completed. Not all the 27 books had been written then. Thus, they had to rely upon the word of man. And how strong it would have been for a man who preached the word to be able to work miracles alongside that thought. He would have given great confidence in that man as a spokesman for God. Notice in Hebrews 2 verses 1 to 4. In that opening few verses of Hebrews 2, we well remember 
that there were some who were admonished so amazingly to appreciate that God's working to perform miracles was to sustain and to confirm that word. Same idea as Mark 16, 20. Perhaps finally in 1 Corinthians 13, a chapter we typically know of as that love chapter of the Bible that sets forth the beauty, the majestic power of love and charity found in its midst, though, Paul's inspired commentary on the cessation of miraculous gifts and such capabilities. Did he not say, when there's, where there is knowledge, it shall cease, and where there's tongues, they shall fail? After having listed those nine miraculous gifts of 1 Corinthians chapter 12, he in this chapter illustrates and sets forth the fact that they would come to a ceasing or a cessation and be replaced by the overwhelming flood of the beauty and power of love. It is that more excellent way, isn't it, of 1 Corinthians 12, 31. It is to be noted thus that in regard to miracles, you and I can't do them today, but we still nonetheless have so many things we can do within the realms of possibility. In Matthew 25, when the Savior gave us a vivid description of the day of judgment, what was it he affirmed? As the sheep and the goats were divided, one on the left and one on the right, the Lord made the following set of statements to those on the right. Now notice what He said to them. He didn't say, you've worked miracles, you've raised the dead, you've healed the sick, you've cured the lame. He said, you visited the sick. He said, you took care of strangers. He said, you gave food to the hungry. He said that you gave water to those that were thirsty. You visited those that were in prison. He didn't make reference thus to miraculous things on that occasion. All of that are things we can do. You and I can provide food to those that are hungry and those that are malnourished. You and I can give water to those that have none. You and I can provide respite and rest to those that are strangers. Those are things we can do. And ought not we thus be filled with good works to the accomplishment of them? In Titus 2 verse 14, as, again, the inspired apostle made reference to that idea. Speaking of Christ, he said, "...who gave himself for us and purified himself a peculiar people zealous of good works." Zealous? Does not that word indicate an energetic desire to have within our capability the performance of good works? Exactly one chapter later in Titus 3.14, "...and let ours also learn to maintain good works." for necessary uses that they be not unfruitful. How thankful we can be for a congregation like Pippin that performs good works and is known for doing so. But may we not lose sight individually that we can perform good works and bring glory to God by virtue of them. Our first lesson then, to keep trained on doing good works, doing what we can with what we have. Maybe a second lesson. Revisiting this scene of Mark chapter 2. The reality of obstacles perhaps easily demands this statement. You and I must meet them with determination. With an obstacle in our path, as we noted earlier, if we simply take the path of least resistance, it means we'll never climb the mountain. We'll never overcome and we'll never reach the glorious reward beyond. We have to have determination. Consider those four friends for just a minute. 
Isn't it incredible some of the things they encountered? We listed physically a moment ago some of what they met in terms of obstacle. The large crowd, getting the man to the roof, breaking up a portion of it, lowering him through it. What about the insult that others may have heaped upon them? Would others perhaps have said, what are you guys doing? We're trying to listen to this man teach and preach and you're disrupting him. You're disturbing him. Can't this wait till later? That didn't seem to deter them. In fact, there's not even mention that those thoughts crossed their mind. They were intent and determined to bring their friend before the Master and to allow Jesus to do what he would on that occasion. May we appreciate the degree of that determination. It's safe to say that if you and I perceive the obstacles in our path to be unconquerable, then that's exactly what they'll prove to be. We'll never conquer them if we think that they're not able to be conquered. But yet, if we, with an appreciation that the power of God's behind us and victory is ours for the taking, we will see that as an opportunity, not so much as an obstacle. And though a bit of difficulty and persecution may cloud the way, the brightness of the reward beyond will gleam through beautifully, and we, with determination, will accomplish what the Lord would have us do. That's what these friends did. How many times in the Holy Scriptures do we recall others that met obstacles? And though the time was hard, and though the obstacles may have been daunting, they nonetheless came through brilliantly. In fact, I've listed some passages, perhaps that are some of your favorites. In the 13th verse of Philippians 4, I, Paul said, can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. That was spoken by a man in a Roman prison. Spoken by a man who himself at that moment seemed powerless, and yet he could nonetheless say, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Paul appreciated his strength came through the Savior, and he did not in any sense take that for granted. He appreciated it, rested upon it. Notice in other passages such as Matthew nineteen twenty six, This was one of the statements by our Savior. When he made note of the fact that with men, though things may appear impossible, with God all things are possible. Jeremiah felt the same in Jeremiah 32.17. Job appreciated the same in Job 42.2. To say all that is to remind us that when you and I see obstacles in our way, let us not think they're unconquerable. Let us not think that they're impossible to accomplish. Indeed, with the power of God behind us, we can do all things. Love is that factor that seemed to motivate the apostle. And isn't that what the motivating factor was for the Savior? In fact, the greatest of the commandments, he himself said in Mark 12, verse 30, that commandment in words like this, the greatest of those commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind, and with all thy strength. The second, of course, the greatness to be seen in the character of loving one's neighbor as oneself. I say all that perhaps to close that second point of our lesson by noting we've seen two. The second dealt with determination. The first one to do what we can with what we have. But thirdly, what else might we appreciate in light of the lessons to be learned? We have hinted at it previously. Let's shed a bit more light upon it. We have noted that determination was important. 
But that determination should be met, of course, with effort. It shall take some work, and it shall take some investment. Notice again, if you would, these four friends. They certainly invested a significant amount of physical labor and effort to haul this man to the roof and then to physically lower him before the Savior. Can we not see that when we face an obstacle, it won't vanish overnight, at least usually? It won't disappear simply in a blink of an eye. It'll take effort over a period of time in order to overcome it. Some passages in the Bible that often illustrate that point. Think about Noah for a moment. Here was a man who lived in a world overcome with evil. In Genesis 6 verse 5, it is there indicated that the thoughts of men's heart was only evil continually. And it was in that context that God told Noah, construct an ark. Three stories, one door, two of all the animals, seven of the clean ones are to be brought on board. Now that was a daunting task, wouldn't you say? For he and his family, perhaps some of the servants, to build an ark. And it was a gigantic vessel, 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, some 45 feet high. It was a massive vessel. And yet, there was no army of 10,000 men to build it. There was no shipbuilding factory in Norfolk, Virginia to take care of it. There was Noah, his sons, and perhaps some servants, and that was it. Notice, there was some effort to be required to overcome that obstacle. God did give the time to do it. It would appear from Genesis 6, verses 3 and 4, 120 years were given to build it. Might we learn also, God will allow us the opportunity with patience, determination, and perseverance to overcome, but it will take effort on our part. No problem will just whisk away in the blink of an eye. Another example, perhaps, Israel's marvelous conquest and habitation of Canaan. God had promised that to Abraham on the occasion of Genesis chapters 12 and 13. And yet, generation after generation passed. They never, however, inherited that great land. Though there were some that sojourned in it. In fact, didn't it true that Isaac and Jacob and Joseph all sojourned in it? But when was it fulfilled and they received it as an inheritance? Certainly an obstacle was before them. When they crossed the Jordan River in Joshua chapter 3, it was inhabited by Jebusites, Girgashites, Hivites, and a whole host of others. Obstacle. What did Israel do? God told them to, with armament and battle, you defeat those that are inhabiting and you take that land and I'll give it to you. Might we never forget, God didn't miraculously take away all those inhabiting that land. Israel had to take it. And when they took it, God blessed them by allowing them to have it. But when they failed, then the others conquered them. Many ways that will happen in our lives. If we just rest back and expect God to take miraculously everything from us, we're going to be weak, our faith will not be strong, and we'll be overwhelmed by the difficulties that surround us. But... If we, with determination and reliance and faith on the Word, will approach the difficulties and obstacles before us, God will be with us and we will be stronger for the process, having reached that point of greatness in our faith. Oh, indeed, obsti overcoming obstacles will require effort. And should we not certainly remember that in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. 
we ought not think that it's going to be an easy matter. In fact, didn't Jesus describe it as a straight and narrow way? Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14. Sometimes we fail to recollect fully what that word straight implies. You see, the spelling is intriguing. S-T-R-A-I-G-H-T means something that doesn't have any crooks in it. The Lord didn't use that word. He said, enter ye in at the straight gate, spelled S-T-R-A-I-T. There's no G in it. What's the significance of that thought? That word straight means something to be travailed and traversed with difficulty, something that requires great interest and intent. In fact, we do still use that word from time to time. For instance, that very tiny entrance to the Mediterranean Sea is the Strait of Gibraltar. Notice, spell the same way. A ship, if she isn't careful, if its captain isn't certainly on guard and ever watchful for the dangers about, will run that ship aground and destroy perhaps the cargo and life on board. A strait is something to be navigated with great care, great effort, and great diligence. The Lord said heaven will be gained the same way. May we always recollect and think often about the narrowness of that way that leads to life and the fact there's few that's traveling it. Most are to be found on the wide way that's easy. It doesn't require anything of you. Forget about the obstacles. The Lord didn't say that. The way is narrow. It requires diligence, straightness, and difficulty. That's certainly a third lesson that we can appreciate as well. And doesn't that indicate the strength that makes that possible? In Psalm 27, verse 4, One thing have I desired of the Lord, and that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, that I may behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in His temple. David, on that occasion, had a very direct and straight focus. One thing I've desired, I'll not be deterred from it, I'll not be side-focused, I'll not be, in fact, moved aside. Is it any wonder that Joshua was told, don't you turn to the right or to the left. You stay straight down the guidepost of what the Lord has dictated and the Lord will bless you. May you and I deal the same. Understanding that determined dedication and focus will meet those obstacles and the effort that we invest will be productive to the accomplishment of what is demanded. Maybe in the fourth place. Can we not also see that good works are what demonstrates in regard to our faith? That faith that we possess is something that illustrates itself in these good works that we accomplish. We don't seek to overcome obstacles just to bring glory to ourselves. You and I are just low creatures made of dust. The time will come that this life will be over for us. What is most important is, is that we overcome those obstacles to bring the proper glory to the very one who made us and to impact others about us in a proper and good way. Sometimes as we think about the obstacles that we face even physically in life, as we confront them and overcome them, so many others can be benefited by observing what we accomplish by virtue of the way we do it. Maybe you and I have watched our mother or our father or perhaps a good friend or an aunt or an uncle who encountered an obstacle that may have seemed daunting, may have seemed overwhelming, and yet they, with an amazing perseverance, 
and with all the dedication and diligence that one could fathom, approached that and finally, by way of emergence therefrom, was able to illustrate and speak to others about what you can do too. Isn't it amazing how that works? It would seem that these four friends and this paralyzed man, as he himself was healed in verses 6 through 9, I wonder what he came to tell others about the way he was healed. Do you suppose he shared with them about how his friends lowered him through the roof? Do you suppose he shared with them what the Savior said to him? Do you suppose he was able to show that these, my legs, wouldn't work before, but now they do? You see, he was a living testimony, apparently, from that point forward, for all that he would have occasion to about what God had accomplished through the character of his son. I've listed a passage or two for your consideration along that line of this lesson. In Galatians 5, verse 6, is it there not stated that faith which worketh by love is what avails before God? Faith that works by love. When you and I are motivated in love to overcome those obstacles, then that faith that we demonstrate is an open testimony of what God can accomplish through us. The Apostle Paul serves as a dramatic example of that, doesn't he? Here was a man that was a noted opponent to the cross, and yet, in 2 Corinthians 12, he identified himself as being one who was an open testimony to the goodness of what God could do to all men. Perhaps finally, it would be fair to observe yet a fifth lesson. Overcoming obstacles, is it worth the effort? These men who haul that man to the roof, and these men who took the time to uncover the tile and lower him there, did they feel it was worth the effort? Maybe it was a difficult and hot day in the middle part of the eastern world. Did they think all the sweat and effort was worth it? Apparently they did. Do you and I sometimes lose sight of thinking that the effort may not be worth it? Is the effort and the good works of the church worth the time it takes? Are these difficulties and obstacles I face going to be worth the effort I must invest in order to overcome them? May we resoundingly say yes. For if we don't think that it's worth the effort, we won't ever invest it. We'll never overcome them, and our way will ever be mired in the same redundancy that it continues to be. But if we truly believe that the end is worth what's going to be invested, that that final victory and reward is worth the effort to be made, then we will be willing to make it. These men felt so, and may we do the same. In 1 Peter 2 verse 12, the greatness of heaven waits for those who have felt that the effort was worth it. Sometimes we sing a song, heaven will surely be worth it all. Heaven will surely be worth it all. Each of us know well that here things can sometimes be very dark. Sickness and disease and difficulty and sin and criminality, ungodly behavior and iniquity abound. And you and I feel the brunt of it. Others may treat us in ways that bring sadness to our heart. Friend, heaven will surely be worth it all. You remain faithful. Remain strong, meet that obstacle, and do so with a mindset of gospel truth. God will be there with you. And in so doing, the victorious end that you will experience will be far, far worth everything and more that you ever had to invest. Overcoming obstacles. We have thus seen briefly today some five lessons. To summarize or at least revisit them quickly, 
We have seen in the case of this man who by four friends was brought before the Savior and the Savior healed him. We have seen very quickly and powerfully that you and I can do what we can with what we have. And that's all the Lord will expect of us. But we must do so with determination, just as the four friends did. It will require effort, and in so doing, we'll be able to bring glory into the God of heaven. And then finally, to appreciate that the effort is worth it. The end result is worth the investment it takes. As we, a congregation, strive thus to overcome our obstacles, as we as individuals do the same, perhaps these lessons will be a benefit to us. Today, are you a Christian? If you do not have the Savior at your side, then you're battling, quite frankly, a battle against sin that you cannot win. And I don't say that in any trivial way, for the only way to overcome sin is through the Savior. You can never live good enough. You can never do enough good things. You can never, in fact, do anything that will merit your eternal salvation. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Acts 4 verse 12. You need to allow the Savior to touch your life. You need to believe upon Him as a Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His name as the only begotten Son of God. And be baptized for the remission of sins. Acts 2.38. If you will do that, the Lord will add you to His church and He will be with you in your faithfulness every step of the way. And there will come a time He'll take you home to glory. If you make mistakes, and certainly you will, pray to Him for forgiveness. If, though they've been of a public variety and others know of the mistakes and the shame and disgrace you've brought upon yourself as a Christian in the church, let that be known to them so that they can be as excited as you for your rededication. And we'll be happy to pray on your behalf. Acts 8 verses 20 and following gives us an example. If either of that would be the need of your heart and life today, would you not let it be known while together we stand and while we sing?